Matthew 7, 1 through 5. Do not judge so you may not be judged. For with the judgment you make, you will be judged. And the measure you give will be the measure you get. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your neighbor, let me take the speck out of your eye while the log is still in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. Thank you so much for reading today. I, uh, I don't know if I fully took stock of what it would be like to have someone Marley's age call all of us hypocrites. Well done. There are a couple of backpacks up here still. They're more than welcome to stay here. If you want to take them back to your seat, you're also able to. My backpack is here, so thank you for blessing that as well, even if you did not intend to. Today we're going to talk about judgment. I want to start with a story about the dog park. This is a bit of a confession. I feel like, here's the thing. Uh, This morning, the sort of posture of confession of saying that I'm sorry or, or I was wrong in this situation is a really good posture to take. So if that's difficult for you, then it's just, it's okay. But a movement toward uh, confession is good. So I'm going to practice it here for you. Uh, we're talking about judgment. And shocker, sometimes I get judgy, just like some of you do. Last week we talked about anxiety. And I don't remember if I mentioned this, so I'll say it now. But in our family, uh, we have this, I don't know if we've like said it out loud, but it is this impulse to when we get anxious for whatever reason, and we want a cheap fix. So not like a deep fix, but a cheap fix. The best way to deal with our anxiety is to get really judgy about someone else. Can anyone else relate to this? Where if you start to feel like self-conscious or uh, really aware that things aren't quite working out, then you can just find someone else that's like a li- doing just a little bit worse. Then you might could use them like a step stool. So you sort of step on their shoulders and you can look down and be like, this is great. I'm just a little bit higher than you. I feel better about myself right now. One of the things we've learned to do when we feel like anxious or stressed is we go to the dog park. And the reason you can go to the dog park if you're anxious and stressed is because you can judge dogs. And Jesus didn't say anything about that. So it feels okay. Now... Unlike our worst days when we judge the dogs, we're really vicariously judging the owners through their dogs, right? Like, that dog is so gossipy. That's not a thing a dog can be. Our favorite dog in the dog park is the corgi. Does anyone have a corgi in here? We would have been instant friends. I would have judged you in a really great way if you had a corgi. Uh, that's my dog on the left, our family's dog, Jack Russell. Her name is Gertie. When you meet Gertie, you will learn a lot about our family, and you can judge accordingly. Uh, but, but corgis are our favorite dogs at the dog park for all the reasons corgis are everybody's favorite dogs. They're amazing. Uh, and so Judah especially is sort of like always on the lookout for corgi. And if you see one, you're in a really good mood. But sometimes there are these dogs at the dog park. And they're not friends. They immediately read as suspicious or as enemy. Do you know this? If 
The youngs, you're always at the dog park as well. Sometimes we both cross paths. Uh, they're just those dogs that are just trouble. And you can maybe find somebody. Also, judging is a really good way to find new friends. So if you go to the dog park and you're like, did you see that dog? <laughs> Quick, fast friends. Judgment is, uh, it's sort of everywhere. And we kind of know we're not supposed to engage in it in a reckless way, partly because Jesus says it really clear. Marley, you read for us today how clear Jesus is about judgment or the danger of judgment, but it's just so natural. And right now in the world, it's like really, really second nature. There are so many different places that we can offer up our judgments. It is amazing how many things we are allowed to judge now. I don't think that that's used to be the case where you could show up in any place and immediately render judgments on like the quality of a bake or the application of makeup or whether or not the shirt is tucked in the correct way. I'm still learning there are multiple ways to tuck a shirt in. All of these sort of things. Now reasons are many, but one of them is the digital world that we're spending more and more of our time within is sort of built for judgment. We kind of invite it with some of the ways that we use the internet or social media. There are these videos that have been posted over the last decade or so of children, like really young kids who are trying to figure things out. If you've met a kid who's just trying to figure things out, trying to figure out how to grow up, how to become an adult, it's not an easy passage. And everything sort of is up in the air and in flux. And there are these young kids who are going online and they'll sort of turn the, the camera toward themselves and they'll be sitting at their desk. It's you, in this story, it's usually a young female, which makes it so sad. And they'll ask the camera, am I pretty? And if you've been on YouTube's comment threads, you will know that it is the worst. And it's just awful. This sort of invitation for all of these random people to judge you. And that question, am I lovable, is not unique to like 13-year-old girls. It lives within all of us. The question of are we lovable? Are we in a place where we belong? Do we have a family or a community? Now, if we get a negative answer to the question, then there arises in us this impulse that pushes back against it, right? If you get a no, you're not lovable, then the world begins to look unlovable. And then you get in this kind of feedback loop. I would say today, if there's like one really practical thing that some of us could, could maybe consider praying about, it's to remove yourself from some of the spaces where judgment is the currency. I, I offer this as just a like, take it or leave it. If you have a practice of being like deeply embedded in social media and you've found your own sense of like well-being jeopardized or you found yourself becoming worse person. I became a worse person the more and more I was on Facebook or Twitter or even Instagram because it just sort of, it makes me amplify what I think is awesome about me, makes me suppress things that I know are true about me but problematic, and it also makes me evaluate myself based on how I see you or see other people. And so I had to step away from those spaces. And if that is not you, then great. You can teach some of us how to handle that. But if that is you, if you've caught yourself kind of being on that hamster wheel of proving 
and a posturing, then maybe just take a step back from that realm of judgment. Because in these spaces, you are inviting everyone to weigh in on your value and worth. It's, it's dangerous who you let in to that space. Social media and online specifically, but in general, all different areas of our life, we're sort of looking for ways where we can boost our ego. We can sort of elevate ourselves. That's sometimes why judgment feels so good, is it feels good to elevate yourself by lowering someone else. And the ego is tricky. It's got a mind, often in a will of its own. It's hungry for attention and affection and out to prove itself. When Jesus uses the language of humility, the ego has like a sort of pinches inside. And so we have to figure out what we're going to do with this. Now, here's one way we could handle the fragility of our ego. We could try and fix ourselves by fixing other people. And this is the temptation that Jesus is talking about. Is you become acutely aware of like your truest self. The parts of you that you are okay with people seeing and the parts of you that are shadow. That can be disorienting. We just talked about anxiety last week. And in that disorientation, we will all look for ways to feel less off balance. To feel better, not broken. And the easier, right, the cheap fix is just to to sort of tear someone else down. Condemnation or contempt given as judgment or maybe just advice. And Jesus says... Like, enough of that. One more time the passage for the day. Don't judge so that you won't be judged. For the, with the judgment that you judge, you will be judged. And the measure you give will be measured unto you. Why do you not see the speck or the splinter in your neighbor's eye, but don't even notice the log in your own? How can you say to your neighbor, let me take that splinter or speck out of your eye while the log is in your own? Marley, would you yell again, you hypocrite? Just say it really loud. You hypocrite! When you don't have a microphone, it's less scary. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. As I was reading this last couple of weeks for today, studying and thinking and praying, I kept coming across this same kind of article and bit of wisdom, which is that this passage is one of the most um, abused passages spoken out of context, used in all kind of problematic ways. And often the person says it this way, uh, it's always people who, who want to judge, who feel like they're good to judge, feel like they can see the world really clearly, and they feel like they're not allowed to anymore because of ways that this passage has been used. So you'll hear folks say like, listen, Jesus didn't say that I couldn't judge you because I am so full of light and wisdom that I can see you clearly. So even though you didn't ask me, I'm going to tell you because you're misquoting the passage. There is this like anxiety around who can speak to us about us, who can name things in our lives. Is Jesus telling us not to judge at all? Or is Jesus warning us about the danger of judgment, about what kind of people are capable of it without it eating them alive. 
Judgment is, uh, is high order spirituality. It is not for most of us. Because you can do a lot of damage when you pick up that tool to wield it. You can use it like a weapon. For a long time in the church, ministers were understood with the metaphor of doctor. And so uh, doctors go through a lot of school to get to cut on people. And we give them lots of really powerful tools to help heal us. But if you give me a scalpel, I won't know what to do with it. And so you want there to be a certain amount of maturity with those you give access to your heart and your soul, your spiritual life. That's some of what Jesus is talking about. There are two kinds of judgment. I think this is the core of what Jesus is talking about. There is the judgment that moves people toward wholeness, toward peace or shalom, toward heaven, toward their best self, their fullest self. That's one kind of judgment. And then there's the kind Jesus is talking about, which is best labeled as contempt, disdain, judging someone to hell. Now, here is why this feels so important for us today. Christianity has been going through a crisis for a while, maybe for like 2,000 years. But where for a lot of, of churches and a lot of practices, people are moving from sort of a salvation moment, like there's Jesus, I like Jesus, me and Jesus are going to be friends, Jesus is my Lord, straight to, let me tell you everything you're doing wrong because I just found Jesus and I can see everything clearly now. And there is no middle space to transform, to become. We call that discipleship. And so there's this big sort of leap that's happening. Now the reason that's a problem is because anyone who goes from like step A to step Z and nothing in between becomes incredibly dangerous. So if I ask the question today, how many of us in here have experienced church or religion as painful because you've been given a judgment that felt like it tore you down or tore you apart? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but you know that's a lot of us here. I have that experience, and a lot of you do too. So the judgment that Jesus is asking us to move toward is one where when we see the world, we can see it in its potential for wholeness. We can see the kingdom. We can see the signs of the kingdom being born in the world. The kind of judgment Jesus warns about is what we would call contempt. There's a... Um, there's a therapist who's written a really good book about marriage that uh, my wife and I have read and a lot of people have found it useful. But he has this technique where he can sort of predict after just a few minutes of observing a couple. Uh, do you know this research, Mandy? Uh, sort of predict their likelihood for divorce. And there's, he's got like really good averages on this. After just a few minutes of watching them, he can figure out if their marriage is headed for divorce. And here's what he looks for. Signs of contempt for one another, that each party is judging the other one so much as to see them as worthless. If that is present in a relationship, 
it is in big trouble. Now, what happens if an entire religion or spiritual movement is built on mutual contempt for other people's stumbles or failings? And unless everyone is perfect or pretending to be perfect, then we sort of retreat. It's a really dangerous situation. So there are two kinds of judgment, and we are invited into one or the other. Here's the way you might be able to tell if, how this is operating in your own life. Um, or maybe someone you're with. Uh, a good way to check this vision is to listen to what happens in your own heart when you see someone who's on the street asking for money. See somebody who's on a corner, they might have a cardboard sign, and they, they're in some kind of acute need, and they're asking. Now, we can take these two different versions of judgment, and we can ask the question, what do you see? Because that's really what judgment is. What do you see, and how do you evaluate what you're seeing? I've been, I've overheard, both in other people and in my own heart, this conversation when you see folks who are in acute need well, what did they do to get in this situation? What have they been sort of lazy for? Or what is the addiction? Or what is the reason that this is their fault that they are in this situation of houselessness? Or you see somebody pull out like a cell phone and you think like they don't actually need anything because they've got a phone or there are all of these different ways because poverty makes us uncomfortable. And it's easier just to sort of move to contempt. There's a reason that to be poor is to be ostracized or to be outside of the community. Or you might have this kind of vision that says something like, that could be me. I was talking with someone in the congregation who had this exact same conversation with me. Like, I'm one medical crisis away from being in that place too. That's empathy. Right? That's moving toward, not away from. It's trying to see that person's full humanity. Who are their parents? Who are their siblings? What's their family's story? What kind of judgment do you render in these kinds of spaces? That's the invitation all the time. Behind two different kinds of judgments is two kinds of of God. And this is starting to get to the heart of the passage today. Uh, months ago, we, t- we preached on the fruit of the Spirit, and we continually said together that each fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, all of those are qualities that God possesses. And so the more that we get to know God and God's true self, the more that we will be able to live these things out. If you want to know what it looks like to love, then look at how God loves us, or what it looks like to forgive, or what it looks like to be full of joy and rejoicing and gratitude. Those qualities are, are God's qualities. But if you imagine God wrongly, you will experience the God that you see and you imagine. That's a dangerous proposition. So, what is God like? Now in these two judgments, the Jesus version of judging and then this broken version of judging, there is a God behind each of these. So, let's start with the the God of Jesus, because that's always a good place to start when trying to figure out God. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Just before this passage on anxiety, what does Jesus say about God? Your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. He says it twice. 
says it right before the Lord's Prayer. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. There is this painting of a picture of a safe, benevolent parent. Later on in the New Testament, uh, there's a letter written to one of the churches where it keeps explaining over and over again that God is love. That this quality of of love, sacrificial giving is sort of, this is who God is. If you know this God, then when you issue judgments, you will issue judgments so that people will move from where they are toward a loving God. It is this image that might send somebody chasing after a wholeness that they are after. Here's the other version. Angry God. And this is the dominant version of religion for like most of human history, that the gods are angry. This idea that God is love is new. It's radical and it's off-putting. Because humanity has grown up for a long time assuming that the gods are always angry. That's why we threw all those people in volcanoes. Because the gods were angry and we needed to appease and assuage them. I'm not sure exactly where this impulse came from. But it was likely people getting chased by bears. I'm only kind of joking here. There's this like primal fear we have that wild animals might overtake us. And if you're being chased by a bear, the only thing you have to do is run faster than the slowest person. Like that's it. That's If you can do that, then the bear's not going to get you because they're going to get somebody else. Now, if you are not the fastest person, your second option is to trip someone or shove them back toward the bear. That's where the scapegoat impulse came from. If you have an angry God, then if you can find someone else to blame for God's anger, and if you can sacrifice them, then that God will leave you alone. And so it makes sense in that image of God to hold contempt for others that are screwing up. Because God's coming after somebody, and it better them than you. I said months ago, I'll say it again, a broken image of God breaks the world. So when Jesus says, like, don't judge or you're going to be judged, don't measure or that's going to be the measurement unto you, it's sort of like, don't, don't give the world the God of contempt. If that is your religion, then when you come to the altar, you're going to feel and be afraid of the same God that you've been spinning out into the world. You could say it this way. God is not your angry father. God is not your condescending mother. Often, we have within us this image of God as sort of a synthesis of our parents. Whatever our parents were like, that's like our first image of God. It's partly why it's really important to try to be a good parent to children because you are giving them an understanding of what it's like to deal with authority and what it's like to encounter God. But what if you were given a, like a tough family life? Parents who judged toward contempt rather than toward healing and wholeness. What if you had abusive parents? Parents that told you you didn't look right unless you lost a certain amount of weight or if you got a certain grade or if you got into a certain school or if, 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 
So let me just say very clearly that God is not your angry parent. Jesus gives us a different image of God. But there is a problem. All of these people have all of these splinters in their eyes. And we got to do something about it. Because having a splinter in your eye, like that's an issue. And if we care about one another, then we've got a splinter in our eyes. We've got we to do something about it. And so Jesus gives this really crazy metaphor. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye but don't notice the log in your own eye? I've never had a log in my eye. So I don't know how that would happen. But I've also never had a splinter in my eye. I don't even know how that's possible to get a splinter in your eye. My uncle one time got a splinter on his tongue, which I can only imagine was an accident with a popsicle stick. Like I have no idea how that happened. Looking sap from a tree. Is that a practice of yours? (laughs) I have a certain way that I get splinters out. This is going to surprise nobody if you know me well at all. Uh, if I have a splinter in my finger, uh, and my son had a splinter in his toe last night, and so my, my preferred way of doing it was a problem. Uh, so you've got a splinter and usually in your finger, right? You all have different ways of handling this. My guess is after today's sermon, like 10 of you are going to come up and tell me the way you get splinters out. That's the perfect way. So I don't do what I'm about to show you. Uh, But if I have a splinter in my finger, what I do is I take a needle and I just sort of go, I don't know, how many layers of skin do we have? Seven? Let's say seven. More than one. I go most of the layers down with the needle under the splinter, something like this, and sort of dig a channel out in my finger. And then I can get in there and I can get the splinter out, right? It is not very gentle. I have been known to be sitting in a locked room with a needle trying not to throw up while I'm digging a splinter out because it just drives me crazy that the splinter's in there. That's how I get a splinter out, which is why when my kids have a splinter, they're not sure if they should ask for my help or not. I am aware that this is just for me. This is not actually how I get your splinters out. Uh, but what if the splinter is in the eye? That's a really dangerous way to remove it. Allison, you're a doctor. Is my method good for the eye? You say no. And that's how many years of medical school for you to render that judgment? A lot. It's not a good idea to get a splinter out of someone's eye the way that I was getting a splinter out of my finger. Squeeze the eyeball. Squeeze the eyeball. Here's the thing. What if you meet someone who says, I have this, I have this thing, this, this, this splinter and it's driving me crazy and I can't get it out. Could you help? And you're not ready. I do not get splinters out of people's eyes or fingers with a blindfold on. That would be a terrible idea. And that's a little bit about what it's like to have a log in your eye. It's hard to see things. Maybe that's how the splinter got in their eye in the first place, is you had a log and you were going and peering real close to them to check things out, and the log jabbed them in the eye and gave them a splinter, and then you go and try and get that splinter out. It's just, it's chaos. Jesus says, how about this? How about before 
you go after that splinter. How about you perform an exorcism on yourself? That's the language of remove the log. It's the language of exorcism. What if you exercised your own demons before you go and try to figure out theirs? That's what Jesus is saying. For two reasons. One, what you see in their eye might just be the thing that was in yours. You ever met people like that? Often this is preachers. My kind. Who render judgment after judgment after judgment on the world or on culture. Like here's the thing. If you meet a preacher and all they ever want to talk about is pornography. There's a really good chance that they're at home having some issues. Like this obsession with other people's sins is often an obsession with the mirror. So sometimes if you get the, the log out, if you exercise your own life, the world just looks different. A lot of the things you thought were splinters in people's eyes was just your own junk. But the other reason is there are truly people who need help, who need a, a hand, who need a judgment that would move them back toward God and not away. And you want to be ready. You want to be the kind of people who are trustworthy. This is a question I asked the group on Thursday in our our little sermon study group that we have together. You're all invited, by the way, 12 o'clock in the lobby space. Um, This is the question, who do you let judge you? Who do you let do operation on your eye when there's a splinter in it? You should know the answer to this question. Because if you don't know the answer to this question, odds are anyone can judge you and you believe it. Even the most dangerous types of people. If you're understanding your truest self from like Facebook comment threads, then you are in the wrong spaces. I'll tell you who judges me, who I invite to judge me. Uh, well, first is my spouse, Corey. Uh, she knows me really well and because I know when she tells me something it is not in this contempt category it is in this move back toward truest self and wholeness category we trust each other and so we can say things to each other uh, my mentor George uh, a colleague in ministry Scott Austin Annette I have a lot of people who are able to get to my heart and say what they see uh, More and more as we learn to trust one another, I would say the staff functions in this way together where we are able to sort of say true things to one another about what we're seeing because we're trying all together to move toward wholeness or completeness. This is what Jesus says to be. Be complete as your Father in heaven is complete or whole. So who gets to judge you? Who do you invite into that space? And how do you know if they're trustworthy? If I go to the doctor to be treated, it's really important to me that they don't have the flu while they're treating me. And it should be really important to all of us, the qualities of the person that we invite to say true things to us. And then we should know that if someone is telling us a story about ourselves that is contempt and disdain and condemnation, then we've got to figure out a way To not let that become part of us. To immunize against it. In some situations to step out of those 
spaces. So here's what you can do today. What Richard Rohr calls shadow boxing. Before any of us try to figure out how to fix the world, or how to fix our neighbor, or how to fix our spouse, or how to fix our children, the invitation is to get to know ourselves. To get to know our shadow side. Not to judge it or to hate it, but to know it. To understand it. So that we don't overestimate our abilities and go trying to dig out people's splinters in their eyes with a bowie knife. It's a problem. Take the log out of your own eye, Jesus says. I was meeting with somebody recently over lunch, and it was this person who had this very luminous quality about them. Have you met people like this? They just kind of radiate something grounded and good. And when I meet somebody like this, I listen intently, and I ask a ton of questions, because I want to figure out what circumstances in your life made you this kind of person. The person I was meeting with was, was young, uh, like under 30. And had this just really good sense about them. And it turned out after uh, going through the conversation uh, that this person had spent a lot of time in recovery. And I promise you, like nine out of ten times when I meet somebody who is luminous, it is someone who has been doing something like the 12 steps intently. Because... Here, here they are, 12 steps. I'll read them for you because they're very small. Um, one, admit that we're powerless over our addiction, that our lives have become unmanageable. Two, we've come to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understand God. And then there's four. And four through ten are all about the shadow. They're all about understanding who you are. So it sounds like this. They make a searching and fearless inventory of yourself. Admit to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. This is what my log looks like. I think I found it. Can you see it? Can you help me with this? To admit, to confess? entirely ready to have God remove these defects of characters. Humbly ask God to remove these shortcomings. Made a list of all the people we've harmed. Become willing to make amends. Then make direct amends to such people whenever possible. Except when we injure them to do so. Then continue to take a personal inventory. And when we were wrong, promptly admit it. Four through ten is just all about the shadow self. There's a, there's a phrase in recovery called two-steppers. And those are the folks who admit that they've done something wrong, they have an addiction, and they move right to step 12, which is carry the spiritual awakening forward as a message to others. This movement of acknowledgement to, I think I can fix you. And moving through all of that other work. Before we were able to, to render true judgments in the world, the kind of judgments that will put the world back together, the kind of judgments that will name what belongs to God, what belongs to the kingdom of heaven, before we can do this, we have to know who we are. We have to know our egos. We have to know where our cracks are, what the logs are. Somebody said you have to clean up your side of the street. The reason that this is important 
is because folks come into these doors, into this community, often hurting. Sometimes not even able to name the ways that their life isn't working for them anymore. Splinters all over. And I want us to be ready when folks show up injured. To be able to care for them gently. To be able to restore people back to God. But we have to do the work on ourselves if that's what we want to be. We have to sit with that difficult shadow boxing. It starts with the right understanding of God. Your father knows what you need before you even ask. And if your earthly parents know when you're hungry that you're not going to be given a snake or a scorpion, how much more does your parent in heaven know what you need and can give you good things? starts with an understanding of who God is. And if God is grace and love, then you didn't do anything to earn your spot at the table. And if you think you did, then you're going to make someone else earn it. But if it was just given to you, if you were just forgiven, then you might be the kind of person who can just forgive, who can be generous and gentle. The God you imagine is the God you experience, and a broken image of God breaks the world. One last story. It's a parable. There were these two, two people, and they went to the temple to pray. And the, the routine, the process is that you would, at some point, you would make the journey up to the temple, and up to the temple is always up. And on the way up to the temple, you'd be thinking about your own life, you might be trying to, to make amends on the way. And you get to the temple to pray. So there's these two people. There is this religious leader, this uh I'm just going to say like a Baptist pastor. That feels right to me in this moment. Saying this kind of prayer. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Thieves, rogues, adulterers. This person who works for the IRS. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all of my income. The preacher stands up and has just the most asinine of self-evaluations. Thank God I'm not like them. Because I've got all this other stuff worked out. Marley, what's the language for that? It's hypocrite. Then on the other side, there's this sort of most despised of the culture. Tax collector in the story. But it would be whatever you imagine is easiest to judge. And this person is standing off at a distance, as low as they could be to the ground, beating their chest and crying out, God be gentle with me. Language is have mercy on me, a sinner. But that language of mercy is the language of gentleness. The world is already harsh enough for the one who's sort of fallen in on themselves. 
But maybe God is not like the world. So Jesus tells this parable to the listeners and says to them, I'll tell you this. One of them went home that day justified. And then this bit of wisdom. The one who humbles themselves will be lifted up. But everyone who raises themselves up will be humbled. So I'm inviting you right now to the downward path. Your ego will push against this motion. It will tell you that if you see yourself for how you really are, that you will fall in on yourself. Because everything that we do is to prop ourselves up. But what if God is the ground of our being? And not an angry God, but a loving God. A forgiving God is the ground of our being. Because the truth is, you are forgiven by the gentleness of God who held nothing back. But knows what you need. And so you can look in the mirror. And not be afraid. Because God sees you. And sees you and judges you. And here is the judgment. Not guilty. Forgiven. Beloved. Would you pray with me?